Intro to Digital Archaeology. Intro to Digital Archaeology. Intro to Digital Archaeology. History Thousand. At Carlton University. With Professor Sean Graham. All right, everybody. Gather round. It's story time. I was at the British School in Rome. I was, I don't know, about 21, newly minted, working my first archaeological job. And it was a cool job. I was part of the Tiber Valley Project. I was helping to reevaluate all of this material that had been collected 40, 50 years earlier. My job was to copy the information in the paper recording sheets into the Access database. Each box on the form had a count for a different type of pottery. Each paper form had a digital analog on the screen. It was data entry work, but I got pretty fast, running my finger down the paper form, banging in the numbers on the keypad. But every so often there'd be a horrible warning noise. There was a where recorded on the form, but not provided for in the computer's controlled vocabulary. Computer says no. And so, that data did not get recorded. Well, you've made it. You've made it through the first module of the course. Congratulations. You know, archaeological work records data in many different ways. There is a tension between the ways we've always done the work, the tried-and-true field methods, and these newer methods that are opening up more worlds of experience to archaeological investigation. In short, as Bill Carraher related to you um, the other week, there are as many digital archaeologies as there are regular archaeologies. The way we choose to look at archaeological data, the things we decide to record to pay attention to, well, that dictates a lot of what we might see. The point of the work in this second module is to unpack what you've just completed in the light of that idea. No doubt you've encountered the phrase, the act of observation changes that which is observed. Well, Terry Pratchett once noted that if it's true to say that, well, it's even more true to say that the things observed also change the observer. In archaeological terms, in data terms, this means that what gets counted, counts. The archaeology doesn't exist, it doesn't have meaning, until we go out and look for it. Insert puzzled Keanu meme here. This week, I want you to reflect on the ways the coding scheme we used for recording the graveyards failed. Then I want you to take that scheme, modify it in the light of this reflection on what failed, modify it so that it's better. Does the job cleaner, more effectively, more efficiently, captures a wider variety of data, gets at the experience better? You need to decide what the issue is and then see if you can re-implement it to address that issue. Now, you don't have to then go out and re-record everything you've already recorded in the graveyard, though you're welcome to do that if you've got the time and energy. But rather, what I want you to see is how your choices intersect with the decisions already taken by the Kobo Toolbox people to conspire to make your graveyard data observable. 
Other tasks this week can include getting to know a bit about the statistical software R and the programming environment RStudio, and a bit of futzing about with databases. So thinking about data models and data design, and then looking at some of the ways we record and keep that data handy, but also some of the ways we then manipulate it. This week, we're joined by Dr. Colleen Morgan from the University of York in the UK. And Dr. Ben Carter from Muhlenberg College in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Hi, I'm Colleen Morgan. I am the lecturer in Digital Archaeology and Heritage in the Department of Archaeology at the University of York. And I also direct the, co-direct the um, Digital Archaeology and Digital Heritage Master's programs. My current projects are the Aid Memoir project and the Other Eyes project. So Aid Memoir is all about digital recording in um, archaeology. It's primarily about drawing and so really trying to understand what, the, what drawing is in archaeology and what it means that we are increasingly losing drawing within um, our archaeological toolkit. We've come on some really, really interesting results as well. Um, needless to say that not only should we um, not stop drawing, or continue drawing, but we should also be drawing more, more often and probably during every single course you take. Uh, the Other Eyes project is, a, um, is about avatars in archaeology, so moving through is ethical for us to inhabit um, avatars of the past that are based on bioarchaeological uh, remains. And so that is continuing on. I'll be presenting a paper on that um, soon, I believe. And so um, I got started in digital archaeology way back um, almost 20 years ago with uh, Dr. Maria Franklin working in Dallas, Texas on the Thomas and Nora Cole site. Um, they wanted a website for this um, excavation and um, they somehow understood that I had at least a few digital um, skills. And so I went ahead and digitized some of their old photos. I made a very, very basic and now gone website for them. And um, that's, I've just been doing that ever since. So at a certain point, they kind of shooed me to go and work inside. I was a bit sad about that, but continues on. Uh, the biggest challenge facing digital archaeology at the moment, um, I think really showing that critical, impactful discoveries can be made through digital archaeology. It's not really always that easy to prove to funders that you're going to find out something new about the past through the application of digital methods, because you don't always know what, you, what that thing will be. Um, because so much of it is through kind of in, indirect investigation and playful approaches. That's, and that's what I really enjoy about it, but it also can be difficult to find somebody to um, fund a lot of playing around. Um, and so what drives me up the wall about how digital archaeology is currently received or perceived in their profession? I think um, going back to the Aid Memoir project, the way digital tools are used without understanding their impact on knowledge production in archaeology, um, without understanding how what they're doing to our mental mo models of um, how we interpret and disseminate archaeology. Um, so what fills me with hope about the field. Um, I think the way that people are using digital methods to 
fight fascism, to try to change the colonial basis on which archaeological um, investigation is built. I think that's probably the most hopeful thing. Um, I, me and a few others have started a microgrants um, collective. It's called the Black Trowel uh, Collective, and we give out microgrants to um, students from archaeology students from underserved communities and historically looted communities. Um, and so right now we're centering sort of black and trans archaeology students to try to give them a, um, a little bit of help um, in, this, in this very majority white field. Um, thank you for um, inviting me to do this, Sean, and um, I hope you all have a good term. Good morning, all. Uh, my name is Ben Carter. I'm an associate professor of anthropology at Muhlenberg College in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Um, I'll tell you, the, the project I'm working on is actually fairly difficult to um, abbreviate. Uh, so what I'm looking at is charcoal production. Now that may sound um, silly and small, but it was an extremely important industry here in Pennsylvania, mostly through the 19th century. Um, and it was, it was largely for the iron, iron industry, for producing iron. It was the fuel that was used. Um, and uh, in order to make charcoal, you have to cut down a bunch of trees and convert them into charcoal, which basically means you have to smolder them for, for two weeks. Uh, and the way this was done is on flat spots of, on the, on, of earth that are usually constructed, uh, built by people. Um, so you have this flat area, build a big pile of wood, um, cover it with dirt, and then light it. And it smolders for a couple weeks, and then you have charcoal. And so what the project I'm working on now is, is thinking about the lives of the colliers, the people who made this, um, this charcoal. And so one aspect of that, there's many aspects of this, one aspect is using um, data uh, that's openly available from the state of Pennsylvania from LIDAR surveys. And LIDAR is when you basically fly a plane over the surface and shoot it with lasers and that basically measures uh, where the ground is. Um, it's a lot more complicated than that, but, but we don't have time. Um, and so we have all this data across the entire state of this sort of micro scale topography. And we are using that, uh, my, one of my students and I, uh, Weston Connor, have gone through and sort of manually, right, looking, using GIS, Geographical Information Systems, and um, this data, uh, which we convert into a slope analysis. And a slope analysis just gives you sort of uh, normally, it's, it's uh, lighter for steeper slopes and darker for flatter slopes. Uh, and so we can see these flat areas on sloped um, uh, surfaces, uh, especially on mountains. And so we've uh, been looking at the Blue Mountain, uh, which is just north of um, our school. And uh, we brought in one of uh, Dr. Graham's students. And Jeff Blackadder is uh, working to help us use this uh, this LIDAR across the entire state, right? And use, to look at the LIDAR from the entire state and use machine learning to recognize these, right? Weston and I have done it all manually, right? We've, we've recognized a couple thousand charcoal hearths uh, on the landscape and Jeff is helping us um, take our, what we've done and train the machine uh, to, to recognize these. It's pretty fascinating. So. Um, and uh, I'll tell you that uh, at this point, we've got tens of thousands 
of charcoal horse uh, across the landscape of Pennsylvania. Um, and I'll leave it at that, even though it, that's a fairly brief summary. Um, if you're interested in uh, some other stuff, uh, I have some data that's been published um, on um, Zenodo, uh, which is an archival service. Um, and you could you could check that out. There's also a wiki, a wiki, uh, wiki dot ironallentownpa.org. And uh, there's actually a website that goes with that as well, the ironallentownpa.org. So that's that's a quick summary. Um, Dr. Graham also asked, how did we get how did I get started in digital archaeology? That's a combination of thinking about the responsibility that we have to communities, both in um, presenting our data, right? So part of digital, my digital archaeology is my website or my websites, and they're sort of outward facing and people can see them and read them, etc. And uh, these are non-academics, uh, generally speaking, um, as well as collecting that data in a um, sort of quick and efficient way. Uh, initially, I thought digital archaeology would be a, a, an efficient way to um, record data. I don't think that anymore. It's not particularly efficient. What it is, is that as long as you put in the time and effort, and again, you need to put in the time and effort, you can get some really clean data. Um, and that is particularly important. Uh, so that's that's sort of where I started is, is trying to use digital tools to start in the field. And then, of course, there's this explosion of LIDAR. And I, I kind of uh, got I got obsessed with looking at LIDAR, uh, particularly in uh, in my own area, seeing, seeing how the, the data is openly available. Dr. Graham also asked, um, what is the biggest challenge facing, facing digital archaeology at the moment. Uh, I, I'm not sure uh, I'm the one to ask that, but for me, um, the biggest challenge at this point is, uh, honestly, it, it's about um, uh, geospatial data. There's uh, Geospatial data is, is sort of clunky and difficult to work with. Uh, it takes a long time to sort of figure out how to do this. Um, and I, personally, I think it needs to, that needs to be fixed. Um, and there's a number of tools out there. Um, Dr. Graham is, I think, using Kobo Toolbox, one of the tools that I'm particularly fond of. Um, and I, again, that helps, helps uh, provide sort of clean data. And that data is also easy to pull into maps and stuff, right? So it, it's, but um, uh, archiving geospatial data, uh, putting it up on the web and and visualizing it on the web, oof, those are those are still still quite difficult, uh, and so I think we need to do a lot more work there. Okay, uh, Dr. Graham also asked, "What drives you up the wall about digital archaeology is currently received slash perceived by the profession?" Um, so, digital archaeology and the broader profession of archaeology. Uh, I think the thing that drives me the most nuts is uh, we're supposed to have these data management plans in grants. And uh, I've read many of them and there's literally no data management plan, but it's sort of seen as, okay, right? They're required, but they're not actually um, supported. And so uh, the community doesn't do a good job of uh, supporting what's already required, much less doing anything beyond that. Uh, for example, I produced a, I thought a very nice di uh, digital, uh, uh, sorry, a data management plan 
Um, and it was basically panned as sort of too elaborate and, and too much. And um, we didn't get the grant partially because there were too many details in the data management plan, which I think is kind of mind boggling, but there it is. What fills me with hope uh, about the field? Um, not surprisingly, um, this is uh, about um, my colleagues. So Dr. Grant being one of them, um, there's so much going on and so much being communicated um, and, and often through platforms like Twitter and Facebook, etc., cetera, um, that it's actually fairly difficult to sort of keep up with my colleagues. I, I feel like I often spend half my time um, just keeping up with them, much less doing my own work. Uh, so that that's that I think that's extremely hopeful, and my um, I guess my hope in that is that because there's so much um, that it will end up actually in broader archaeology, and I think there's there's uh, some good signs that it, that is in fact happening. All right, guys, uh, thank you all very much for listening. I hope this was useful, and uh, yeah, good luck. <laughs>